here's the thing with all the technology we have we're talking about you know living on mars and all these crazy things we still in no way shape or form can come anywhere close to rebuilding cartilage in humans now for people who don't like really uh, haven't seen this or don't really understand this i'll give you a, a simple visualization so imagine two bones just two like bones you pick up and you and you dip the the one end of one bone in hot wax and the end of uh, another bone in hot wax you let that wax dry and now you put those two bones together those two uh the ends that have the the dried wax on it right and that would if you start rubbing those bones against each other it's going to help protect the bones right because it's got that wax covering it right it's not going to break down the bones that's exactly how cartilage is on your bones okay however when you run a lot or you lift heavy or you get older or all these things you start to lose that cartilage and as soon as you lose that cartilage and those bones you get bone to bone contact bones have nerve endings and it's very painful and there's nothing they can do about it that was Dr. Chad Waterbury and you're listening to the Legendary Life podcast What's up, my friends? It's your host, health and fitness expert, Ted Rice, and welcome back to another episode. You're listening to the show that is for executives, entrepreneurs, and people looking to level up their life. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Chad Waterbury, fitness expert and physical therapist about how to train as we get older, how to keep our joints intact, because it's such a common problem for us when we get older to let those aches and pains or injuries stop us from achieving our best body and achieving optimal health. Before we get to the episode with Dr. Chad, I want to talk to you about our coaching group, Legendary Lean. We have launched, it's open right now, and if you're looking to level up your health and fitness and make a dramatic change in all areas of your life, Make sure you go to legendarylifepodcast.com slash coaching and join now. Spots are limited. And if you want to be one of our success stories, like you've seen uh, Art, Todd, Rich, Sarah, all these people who've gone through our previous programs, if you want results like those, there's no time to waste. Join up now. Spots are limited. Legendarylifepodcast.com slash coaching coaching. So let's step into this interview with Dr. Chad Waterbury. Chad Waterbury, welcome back to the Legendary Life Podcast. Uh, It's great to be here, Ted. Yeah, we had you back on a while ago and you were in PT school, but you just graduated PT school in May of 2017. Yeah, exactly. May 12th, I graduated. Although I felt like I've been doing PT for about 21 years before schooling, but I just technically wasn't called a physical therapist. Yeah. And we're going to get into that. In fact, you and I were having a conversation before we started recording and we're like, all right, we got to stop talking. This is like really important stuff to go into. And uh, my, my question was, you had a lot of knowledge going into physical therapy school, even though you went to the top rated physical therapy school in the country, but you have a master's degree in neurophysiology. I've been reading your work for years and years and years. 
And uh, so as a lot of other people in the fitness industry, so what did you end up taking away from that experience when you have so much knowledge to begin with, and then you have so much personal experience being rehabbed for 21 years? What, what were like the biggest takeaways from that about injuries, about training and where you want to go in your career? Well, it was certainly a great supplement to what I already had developed in terms of my knowledge base. And you know, USC has got such a terrific program. My intention of getting the doctor of physical therapy degree was not to do anything different with my career, which sounds kind of strange, but to have more tools in my toolbox. So, you know, I talked to some of my colleagues when I told them I was going to PT school, like, oh, why are you doing that? You've had all the success in the strength conditioning world and all that. And well, I'm not leaving the strength conditioning world. I'm not leaving performance development. I'm not leaving any of that stuff. Just having more, just want to have more tools in my toolbox. And the other issue was, you know, there's real legal, ethical issues with putting your hands on someone. And, you know, personal trainers put their hands all over people. And I certainly did it. It's not really supposed to be that way. Uh, but we do it anyway. Um, but as I got to work with higher and higher level people and organizations, uh, it was just like, all right, I don't want to. I want to be a licensed clinician. You know, I don't want there to be any limitation on what I can or can't do. Uh, meaning, like, you know, put my hands on someone or or whatever, whatever type of you know manipulation or joint mobilization or whatever. You know, I just I want to be able to do all those things you know, legally, ethically, all those, uh, under, under both of those things. So that was the main reason why I did it. Um, in terms of what I learned, you know, I learned, I learned a lot, you know, I didn't, I got to speak very carefully here. Um, well, I why do you say that? You don't want to, you, you, you don't want to offend uh, no. physical therapists or no, 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 no. It's not, not about physical therapy. No, no. I, I don't even want to go down that. I, I just, I want to be sure I phrase things correctly. No, because I am a physical therapist now. I, I'd be offending myself. It's not about that. It's about just certain curriculums around the country for physical therapy. You know, if you want to learn a lot about strength conditioning, that's obviously not the place you're going to learn it. Okay, uh, that's the most politically correct way I could say it. Gotcha. Uh, but that's not why I went there. So I do have now a more systematic approach to the way I assess athletes and clients. Um, I have a better understanding of, oh, when I see X, then I probably should check Y. As I said, I was looking to develop more tools for my toolbox. So now like some shoulder correctives that I didn't know before. When I say correctives, I mean like um, hands-on manipulations I would do, uh, like something we call the AP mode, like on the glenohumeral joint, things like that. Stuff like that, I wasn't, I didn't know how to do. And uh, wasn't doing, you know, before I went to PT school, but now putting it all together, I'm really, I'm really glad I did. I'm glad it's over because it was a brutal three years for sure. I bet. I looked at PT curriculums when I was back in school and I thought, oh man, I really need to, uh, you know, really need to get some advanced education and then I'll really be able to take my career to the next level, which is not the thing to do. You build your business and do what you did and get out there and get yourself known and then pay for your PT school with all the success you've had. That was the right way to do it. I ended up not going, but yeah, man. And in case you're listening right now and you're 
finding the conversation interesting, Chad and I, we're going to get into his powerful mobility ebook. He's also come out with a corrective exercise course. So if you're personal trainer or physical therapist too, I'm sure a physical therapist could learn quite a bit from someone like you with your diverse knowledge being in the strength and conditioning world and having your PT degree. But we're going to talk about injuries, why people get them and how to get over them. And one of the things I wanted to do, Chad, because you're a little bit different, I find you're more open-minded. I, I bought your powerful mobility book. I read through it. I also noticed that you credited a bunch of different people for influencing you and inspiring you in the fitness industry. And some of them were chiropractors. And right now, um, there I don't know if you listen to Joe Rogan's, but uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, do you listen to that by any chance? No, I've... I've heard great things about it, but I'm just, I'm really, I'm working on actually a massive, massive project right now. And I just got out of PT school and I really haven't had the luxury of just like figuring out things to do to take up time. Absolutely. I've heard great things about it. Yeah. I, a lot of my colleagues listen to it. Yeah. And, and the reason I'm asking is uh, there was a specific episode where Cy Babe came on. She wrote this article about chiropractors and how like a lot of the how chiropractic got started was kind of crazy and, and not very scientific. And I was just curious, like when, um, and we're going to get into this a little bit later, cause I, I already told you, I wanted to ask you about how to find a good practitioner, but where do you see like PTs, chiros, and you have respect for chiropractors. I guess what I'm trying to ask is how should so? How would you relate that information and say, "Hey, you know, some chiros are good, just like some PTs are good, and some are bad." Yeah, well, it comes down to the individual person. I mean, there's a lot of professions that probably got started off in a really crazy way or by accident or whatever. But when it comes to working with the human body and helping people overcome pain and dysfunction and improve their performance, I don't put a lot of emphasis on someone's degree anyway. I put it on their experience and their thought process and how they interact with the patient or client. The chiropractors that I know, and let me rephrase that. I don't call them chiropractors and they don't refer themselves as chiropractors. They got a you know, degree in chiropractic. So they're a doctor of chiropractic medicine. That's what their degree is in. That's what they study. That was their angle of their curriculum However, most of them don't even do any adjustments. Most of the, like, when I think of the top chiropractors I know, they don't even do adjustments. So if you equate chiropractors with adjusting the spine, then these people by definition aren't really chiropractors anyway. They're just sports doctors. You know, they look at big things like movement and they look at stability and they look at the interplay between mobility and stability and they use a whole different series of tools, whether it's hands-on soft tissue work, like or Graston or whatever, or ART, or it's more movement based and trying to reprogram their, their nervous system, or they're just trying to build some specific strength or stability in a certain plane or with a certain movement pattern. So again, my main point is that I don't really care what someone's particular area of study was. I care about how they 
you know, present themselves a thought process, interact with people, how, how willing are they to learn from all different disciplines? That's what I care about because that's what matters. Yeah, well said. I, I kind of stumbled and bumbled asking that question because I wasn't sure quite how to word it, but your answer was perfect. It's really not so much about the degree, but what you go on to do, the continuing education. Do you think like a clinician and, and do you get results with people? Even if, uh, I, I, I also say this because sometimes there'll be a practitioner like the Cairo who helped me, the sports doctor who, uh, rehab doctor who happens to have a chiropractic degree who helped me get over a really bad injury in October of 2016 and October of 2014, actually too. He, he didn't do any adjustments, but he, uh, he did all these other things like Graston ART and some laser and a shock wave which is using sound waves to, to induce a healing response. And sometimes like he'll explain why something works and he uses a lot of fascial techniques, he says. But sometimes clinicians don't, they maybe not, maybe they don't understand the exact mechanisms and maybe nobody does because there just hasn't been enough research on it, but they get results with it. What do you think about that? phenomenon that happens. Well, it's a great point. It's, <laughs> I almost, you know, I kind of chuckle when people say, oh, I do fascial work or whatever. And it's like, really? Like, how are you like getting that specific? So Ted, you've seen someone get like ART done or you've had it done, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So this is what I usually do in, in seminars. I'll show like that sort of move, let's say an ART on the, on the pec or whatever. Say okay, here this is a uh, this is my this is here I'm I'm working on the nervous system, or here I'm working on you know the muscle fibers, or here um you know and I'm doing the same thing each time. Right. Here I am uh, doing myofascial treatments, you know, and it's it's all the same. Look, at the end of the day, what we're really doing is we're working on the nervous system because I could go down kind of a rabbit hole with all this, but this whole thing about like adhesions, you know, with like. Uh, some of these soft tissue treatments, it's like, oh yeah, the, the muscle gets hypoxic, which means it doesn't get um, enough oxygen, you know, when it gets stiff and then it, it can lay down scar tissue. And then it's this whole cascade, this vicious cycle of more scar tissue and lack of oxygen. And then you get in there and you, you do this treatment, it breaks up the scar tissue and all the blood and oxygen rushes back in. And then the game is saved, right? Right, right. Except, you know, how the real world works. When you really start to learn more about this, you're basically not going to get scar tissue out of a muscle without surgery. Okay, scar tissue, scar tissue, if you damage a muscle, like you tear your hamstring or whatever, and you don't rehab correctly, and the body lays down a bunch of scar tissue, it's intertwined with the muscle. You know what I mean? So think about a thick muscle and it being like you just cut it or like cut it with a knife and the healing process with that whole area that's cut, that's just all scar tissue intertwined in there. And that's what happens if, if you just, if you don't do PT. So you're not going to just and think about this. So, Oh, I'm going to stick my thumb in someone's hamstring, shorten it and then have it lengthen. All that breaks. Right. You know, think about breaks from what you, now you have just like muscle fibers just hanging freely. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Sure. So it's a great cell. It's kind of like, uh, my friend, 
Pavel Satsalin says about um, about periodization plans. You know, Western periodization plans, they look so great on paper. They make perfect sense. You know, you steady increase in loading and steady increase in volume and all this stuff. Whereas the Russian, the Soviet Union approach, which it's hard to argue that has been significantly more successful, is just random. It's just, you know, all over. There's these, these unexplainable like shifts in volume and intensity that they found works well. Anyway, I'm getting off track here, but the point is, it's like, it's really easy to say that, oh yeah, you know, the muscle gets adhesions, little pieces of scar tissue, and then these treatments, foam rolling or whatever breaks it up. But it's, it's really not what's going on. I mean, what we're really doing is we're working on the nervous system. So another example I, I like to give in seminars is, um, you'll just have to picture this, Ted, but Imagine, imagine you're in the audience, Ted, and I say, okay, who's got shoulder pain? You raise your hand, I bring you up on stage. And I say, okay, show me, let's say it's your right arm, it's your right shoulder. So say, okay, show me, you know, lift your arm up overhead. So you lift your arm up overhead, you know, it might be a little stiff or creaky or whatever. And I'm like, okay, I walk over next to you, I put my fingertip on your right shoulder and say, okay, Ted, now lift up. Okay, I just put my fingertip on there, right. and it, it, you lift it up, it feels exactly the same. You know, I didn't do anything, but I'm like, I always ask the audience, I'm like, okay, I got my fingertip just resting here on his shoulder. Is this changing anything? And most people are like, oh no, that's not doing anything. I'm like, it certainly is doing something. Sure. Not necessarily what he needs, but it is changing the nervous system. It is changing the neural feedback. It's changing the sensory feedback. So that's just a very basic example. But what I want to get at is that, you know, the nervous system is what's holding tension, you know, whether it's in the fascia or it's in the muscle or it's guarding it or it's inhibiting it or here's all different semantics we can use here. But that's what we're working on is, is we are trying to fix the loop from the muscle and or fascia back to the brain and then the brain back to the muscle or fascia. That's what we're working on. Yeah. So it could be that like strength training, for instance, um, I love to talk about glutes. I spent, you know, many months working under Christopher Powers, who does some of the best research on glutes and knee pain in the world. And what we do is, or what he does is, which was what I do now, is I focus a lot on long isometric hold, holds for glute exercises. Okay, so like a, a fire hydrant exercise, if you know that, you're on all fours and you lift one leg up and back like a dog's peeing on a fire hydrant. And instead of doing like 10 reps, you, we just hold that. Hold that with a, with a mini band around the knees so you're getting some resistance, but to hold that end range position and just hold that for up to a minute. And the whole idea here, what we're doing is, is we're improving that brain-butt connection, for lack of a better term. So by holding that position, the brain has to keep sending neural signals to that muscle because instead of just doing reps where basically if you're lifting your leg up and down out to the side, then probably 70, 60% of the time, there's no, no real muscle activation, right? It's pretty much relaxed or passively going back down. But if you have to hold an isometric contraction for 30, 45, 60 seconds, it takes a lot of focus. It takes a lot of neural drive from the brain to the muscle. And that's what we're trying to change here. Chad, so that's yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Let me interject because we're we're you're you're bringing up these all these important things. First, you talked about the the scar tissue and the muscle, 
can't be removed by just your massage therapist who says that the most. Those are the people who say that the most. You, you can't remove it with that. You need surgery. I want to get into whether, like, whether that's something we even need to do with scar tissue. But uh, since we're on the topic of isometrics, I find isometrics fascinating. I kind of stumbled upon them and learned from someone from the MAT and RTS program, the muscle activation techniques and resistance training specialists. And uh, I want to talk about that. Now, isometrics, a lot of people don't like them in the strength and conditioning world or more specifically the bodybuilding world because they don't seem, at least the research doesn't seem to say that they're that effective for building muscle because the lack of range of motion, apparently that's a big thing according to research. But you're making the case for doing isometrics because they increase the connection between our brain and our butts. Can you talk about why that's so important and why maybe including these isometrics that you're talking about or that are in your powerful mobility book or even just what, and I'm curious to think, I know this is like five questions at once, but my brain's like just firing off thinking about all these different avenues we could go down. Uh, But like putting in isometric pauses in our normal weight training routine, can you talk a, a little bit about all that? Oh, Ted. You just opened up so many cans of worms there. You have no idea. Like I'm looking at the time here and I'm like, I don't think we're going to have time for another question after I, after I answer all this stuff. Okay. Yeah. So let's start from the top. Do isometrics build muscle? Well, you know, everything builds muscle, right? But do they build a well? If someone says, well, no, you know, as you said, typical bodybuilding uh, strength training community, maybe they think, no, we don't do them because they're not as good as muscle builders. I'd be like, Holy cow, we gotta we gotta all sit down right here and we gotta really understand <laughs> something. Okay. I've given this example so many times, but not in this specific context. Let's see if let's let's see how you answer this, Ted. Um, which athletes have the best upper body development? Would you say like on the planet? Pound for pound, best gymnast. upper body development. Gymnast. Yes. Okay. Especially the rings guys, right? Especially the rings guys. Okay. All right. So if you look at a rings routine or if you look at how those guys have been training for the last, like you watch from the Olympics, the last five, six, seven, eight years, you know what they're doing like all day long? They're doing isometric holds. Right. <laughs> iron crosses and right. All sorts yeah, of things. Doing iron crosses. They're doing the Maltese. They're doing they're Yeah. They're moving between isometric holds, but they're basically just doing, they're doing, you know, the, the handstand, you know, with the arms, you know, flare, they're just, they're working on holds. That is what they're doing. And their training is based heavily on that. It's doing isometric holds. These guys are not going and lifting weights in the gym for two hours and then going and doing the rings. You know, they're doing the rings. That is their sport. And again, they're doing isometric holds. So if anyone thinks that isometrics are in any way inferior for muscle building capabilities, it's just simply not true. They're either doing the wrong exercises or they're doing them the wrong way. Okay. I've talked about this before. I think the reason why a lot of people don't give isometrics all, uh, the credit they deserve is because they do them at the wrong time under the wrong circumstances. They do it like this. They're doing a, they want their biceps to burn, you know, so they do 15 reps of the bicep and then they're uh, the biceps curl. And then they hold the last, you know, the midpoint of the last 
rep, right? Right, and just, sure. Uh, I'll scream and scream and scream and, you know, and then they drop it, you know, or they, um, you know, it, there's a million examples I could give, but the bottom line is they usually do it at the end of the set, almost always. Sure. Or they just do it, you know, they'll just do it randomly here and there. But, you know, when I talk about motor unit recruitment, I say that that's the wrong, that's the worst time to do it. So you're trying to build muscle, you want the largest motor units. And at the end of the set, when you're already fatigued, holding it isometrically is not going to get into the largest motor units because they're already fatigued out. They're fatigued within five, six, eight, ten seconds, you know, at most. So sure. once you get past that, then you're dealing with other motor units. That's a whole, you know, other issue there with that. But the bottom line is isometrics are terrific. And in fact, I really like, uh, here's, here's another example, Ted, of um, the muscle building capability the muscle building aspects are the capability of isometrics. So you look at ballet dancers. I don't know if you've seen ballet on TV or, or I've been to a, I've been forced to go to a couple. Chad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't <laughs> want to, you know, hurt your ego or testosterone in any way and say that you've been, you know, doing ballet. I think ballet is a terrific sport, but anyway, they all have the, the thing that's really interesting about ballet dancers that they all have really great calf development. Right. It's interesting to me because as a tall, skinny kid, I always had crappy calves. So I worked long and hard trying to figure out how to build the calves, which is a very difficult muscle group to build. But if you look at, um, at ballet dancers, male and female, they all have great calf development. Okay. And they think how much time they spend on their toes, right? All these routines is they're up on their toes, right. like really long isometrics, right? Absolutely. So here we have, so here we have two great examples or two great components that come together to make a good example is a, we have arguably the most difficult muscle group there is to build. If you're born with crappy genetics, which is the calf, the calves, right? Mm-hmm. Anyone with small calves would say it is the toughest muscle group to grow. And then you have a sport that requires a lot, a lot of isometric holds for the calves and then what do you get at the end of the day? Male or female, they all have great calf development, even in the face of their emaciated, you know, nutrition, you know, program and all those other factors, you know, the, the seedy things that go on in those sports where, you know, you have to be really low body weight. They still have great calf development. So, yeah, just watch Black Swan, right? Yeah. If you're not yeah. sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're making a good case for isometrics and and I, I love isometrics and I, I use them in my training, my personal training with all my clients and with myself. Um, just guys like Brad Schoenfeld and some of the other guys who are uh, quote unquote evidence-based and everything they do, they, they promote studies. What you're saying is a bit different, but I, I really like it. And uh, yeah, it seems like maybe the studies on isometrics weren't done in this particular way, they're done like the way you're talking about where they're, people are holding isometric holds at the end of like a 15 rep bicep curl. I think we're also setting the stage for the importance of what we're going to talk about in corrective exercise because you use a lot of isometric holds. And man, one of the things that I see with correct, one of the reasons why I don't like corrective exercise, like how a lot of people talk about it and show it is because they don't use any isometric holds at all. They're just going through the motions. And it's just like you mentioned before, you're, you're not getting that much resistance doing 
doing a quadruped rotation, which all the people who bought my programs or in my coaching group know what that is because that's in their activation warm up. Can you talk about why they're so important for corrective exercise and improving people who have like injuries? Can you talk a bit about that? Oh, absolutely. The first thing I want to say is uh, you mentioned Brad Schoenfeld, who's uh, I think is really great. We need more people like him in this industry. And he is one of the best guys in terms of uh, making sure that everything is evidence-based and such. What I was talking about with isometrics, I, I'll admit, I don't even really know the isometric muscle building research. I haven't really looked into it because what I like to do is I like to get real world examples of things. And not just be like, oh, is there any evidence isometrics builds muscle? And instead, look at the opposite way. It's like, okay, let's look at the world. Let's be a scientist and observe the world around us and be like, all right, is there any examples where someone's doing a lot of isometric holds and did they get good muscle development? So I talk about the ballet dancers, right? Sure. And I talk about the rings gymnasts. You know, a lot of that is just isometric holds, things like that. Now, the third thing that I've seen is going to tie in with your question about corrective exercise and isometric holds. Now, you know what knee valgus is. And for the listeners out there who don't, it's basically when the knees buckle together. So if you seen someone maybe who's a little out of shape or a little, you know, weak or whatever, jump up real high and land, and you see the knees buckle together, I'm going to be politically incorrect and pick on teenage girls here because just by structure, they are set up for big time valgus. So when I, I'm going to use them as example, I say you, if you've seen like a teen, a lot of teenage girls who aren't super athletic jump and then land, you'll see their knees buckle together. That is knee valgus, and that is like if you are trying to uh, make an athlete Superman, then knee valgus is going to be like kryptonite. That's how bad it is in really dynamic movements where deceleration is necessary or change in direction is necessary. Some valgus is a normal part of movement. They look at Olympic lifters. You I know, saw that video. Fast. Yeah. Yeah. Things like that. That's, that's fine. But that's, it's kind of like that example. I don't like it when examples like that get a bunch of traction because that's not how you should train. It's just like a deadlift. You're doing a max attempt deadlift and you're a professional power lifter, you're just trying to get the weight up. Okay. You're not going to be like, oh, I want to be sure I use perfect form for this. No, what you're doing, you're training the right way with the right form all those times to build durability. So when things can't be ideal, like when you're trying to lift a really heavy load and things are going or looking nasty, your body has the resilience to keep it from injury. So it's kind of like these Olympic lifts. Yeah, there's probably some reflex mechanism that they're kicking on that's uh, maybe helping them with that quick valgus or whatever, but you don't want to train that way. You don't want to train that way. So anyway, uh, I'll get off my soapbox for that. Now, isometrics are extremely beneficial in, I don't want to say rehabilitation. I just want to say just in physical development because I don't want to start putting things in boxes here. When you can't activate a muscle, when you can't get a normal level of force out of it, or when you can't really hold it, hold the contraction for an extended period of time, you know, there's some something wrong between the brain and the muscle, you know, something along that pathway or the feedback, something's off. So the best way to improve that pathway 
is to just kind of like bore through it. So in other words, if you're trying to get water to your house and, and your, your faucet, the, the water's coming out too slowly, and then you see that your water line is really small, it's like, oh, I need a bigger water line, right? I need to get more water through there to get more water out my faucet. So it's kind of like that from the brain to the muscle. We need to get a stronger neural drive signal. Just think of, think of it as just being a larger tube that runs from your, your brain to your, to your muscle or you know, just more pathways that are lit up on the way there. And the best way to do it, well, I, I, I don't like to use the word best, but one really effective way to do it, if you look at the research and all that, is to do isometric holds. That's one of the best ways to increase the mind-muscle link. Now we get into something called motor control. Okay, the reason why I say this and the reason why I mentioned valgus is there's this, it's very easy to say that knee valgus is caused by glute medius weakness. So the glute medius performs hip, well, one of its main functions is perform hip abduction, which is pulling your leg out to the side. So it makes sense initially to be like, okay, someone lands, the knees buckle together. Well, what keeps the knees from buckling together are the glute fibers that perform abduction and external rotation. But let's just pick on the glute medius. Let's just say, you know, the glute medius is a big one here for keeping the knees apart and not making them buckle together. So it's easy to say someone lands their knees buckle together, they have a weak glute medius. However, 99 out of 100 times, if you tell that athlete, say, okay, jump up, and when you land, I want you to pull your knees apart as soon as your feet hit the floor. So they jump up, they land, and then boom, their knees go out wide when they land, right? So right. they knew what to do. I told them what to do, okay? That's not glute medius weakness. If the glute medius was weak, they couldn't pull their knees out to the side. You see what I mean? I define you. weakness. Yeah, I define weakness is no, the muscle just isn't strong enough to do it. So it's like, I, you know, I can press a 100-pound dumbbell overhead, but I can't press a 300-pound dumbbell overhead. So in terms of what I need to press that I have, I'm weak, you know, in that sense. Right. I'm with you, man. But, but if someone, if someone said, Hey, you know, just do this and you can press a 300 pound dumbbell overhead, that wouldn't be weakness. That would be something else. Right. So it's just like this with the glute medius. Now with the glute medius and this whole knee valgus thing, I really look at it as it's a lack of motor control. Motor control is kind of this elusive thing, but it's basically the ability to perform a movement without errors or to be able to perform a movement smoothly. Okay? And, and, so, and so, unconsciously too, right? Because that person who landed with the knee valgus, with, with the knees coming together, then you said, hey, keep your knees out when you land. And then they were able to do it, but they've got to think consciously about making that happen all the time. And, and you're saying if we have this good motor control, that'll happen naturally. Is that correct? Yes, but it has to be practiced. And you bring up a great point here. So I designed a corrective exercise specialist certification course for the International Sports Sciences Association. And it, I think this is a terrific course. It has a very unique approach to corrective exercise. And in it, I talk about, Ted, what you just mentioned. There are two types of motor control. There's closed loop motor control, which is basically what I just explained. You have to think about it. You have to go slowly, right? or else it's not going to be done right. But once you do that correctly, once you practice it, you know, you're thinking about it and then start to move faster and faster, it'll eventually become what we call uh, open loop motor control will be automatic. Okay. But it takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of practice. You're essentially trying to build a movement into a reflex and that takes, you know, that isn't, it's not easy to do. 
but it's really important with knee valgus. And when How I long say, does it take, Chad? Well, it's... It Sorry, depends. man. Is that another can like, I opened up? But, but let's just say, let's just say eight weeks. Okay. Let's just say eight weeks. Okay. If you practice it, you know, a few times a day, not for like hours, but like you spend, you know, five to 10 minutes on these glute drills and do the right progression and things like that. Then like in eight weeks, the idea is if you're doing the other stuff, right, it should be, you know, start to become an integral part of your unconscious, uh, motor control. Okay. Your, your motor program, but back to the isometric holds, um, it's just really beneficial for the person to perform holds because it's increasing that neural drive to the muscle. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention is, as I said, I spent four months straight, more time than that total, but four months straight with Professor Christopher Powers' Movement Performance Institute and working with these athletes who had ACL repair or knee injuries or whatever. And we put him through his glute strengthening program. And his glute strengthening program, essentially for the first few weeks, all they're doing is isometric holds. They're not doing anything but that. Okay. They're doing isometric holds for the glutes a couple times a day. And we had this progression of exercises we put them through. But I saw time and time again, I like, how much hypertrophy they're getting in the glutes. And they said it themselves too. I noticed it, male and female, they would mention it. And, uh, you know, most people like the fact they have bigger glutes, but again, they were just doing isometric holds and they're doing long isometric holds. So they are a powerful, potent muscle builder. If you use them with the right exercises for the right duration and the right frequency, you know, I'm really big on training frequency. And I think it's, it's really what is the least appreciated aspect of muscle growth. And when you do exercises that don't beat up the joints and allow like maximum muscle activation, like a lot of these, um, glute, abdominal, um, hamstring, quad drills, all these things, shoulder drills I have in my corrective exercise certification course, it's 10 week online course, but then I actually put them in my powerful mobility ebook as well, which is just $9.99 on Amazon. So I wanted people to just get a taste of some, you know, good corrective exercises that that I like, that I use often, with the caveat that the first thing I always try to do when there's something wrong with an exercise, when I say an exercise, I mean like a compound movement, whether it's a lunge, a squat, a deadlift, overhead press, any of these things, is I spend a lot of time trying to get that movement right. I don't just say, oh, they got knee pain with the lunge. All right, let's foam roll their right. IT band. Yeah, right? foam roll the IT uh, band, sure. Trying to teach trainers and athletic trainers and physical therapists, trying to teach them how to perform a movement analysis, how to really, what things to think about and look at they might not be thinking about or looking at when you see someone do any sort of movement. That's the one of the main things I teach um, during the first part of my corrective exercise course. So then the powerful mobility ebook, as I talked about, that's, you know, further along in the process, you know, further down the line, it's like, okay, X, Y, and Z hasn't worked. Now let's try some of these activation drills that turns on the muscles that helps with the mind muscle link. So now when you're doing the movement, the brain can better activate it and 
in hopes of making the movement. And Chad, I, w- I want to interject for a second because someone may listen to that, what you just said, and like maybe they're a little bit lost with like, okay, how can I not have muscle activation when I'm lifting all these weights all the time? Can you talk a little bit about why that happens and what exactly happens? Yeah, there's different terms people use. Some people call muscle inhibition. Um, that was a term that uh, Professor Yonda, who I think was just absolutely terrific uh, in so many ways, he used, talked about certain muscles being inhibited. And muscle inhibition, we go back to the glutes. I could talk you know, all day long here about the glutes, but the glutes of you know, of the really important lower body muscles, they're one that's probably most likely to be inhibited, we'll call it, okay? Some people call it weak. They don't use the term inhibited. But at the end of the day, here's what we know, that for the amount of motor units that are in their glutes, the brain isn't able to activate them, okay? So you can call that whatever you want. So let's say there's a thousand motor units in your right glute. Most people can only, um, most untrained people or people with poor posture or some other issues, people that are super dominant, hamstrings or low back muscles or whatever, can only activate, you know, a relatively small fraction of that total. But by having them, by putting the glute then in an advantageous position biomechanically and having them hold that position and make those, that, that glute fire hard, then the brain learns to activate more and more of those quote dormant um, motor units. Okay. Now the reason, well, let me back up. You ask, why does that happen? Why does someone have an inhibited muscle or a weak muscle? And, and or especially why? when they're exercising already. I think a lot of yeah. people won't understand why that happens. Yeah. Yeah. The reason is because the body is really good at compensating. You know, there are people who can deadlift, you know, quite a bit of weight and they have pretty crappy glute strength. I've seen, I've tested this, you know, I've seen this so many times. And the reason is, is because the body again, learns to compensate. There are lots of muscles that extend the hip and that's what you need to do when you're doing a deadlift. So going back to, you know, to extend the hip and to, uh, extend the, the spine, you know, you got the spinal rectors and you got the low back muscles and, and other muscles that can help to extend the hip and the hamstrings and things like that, where you don't need the full function of the glutes. I mean, you do need it, but the body can get around it, right? So what happens is then you keep priming that pattern and the stronger muscles then are doing more of the work. So they're getting stronger and the, the more inhibited ones for whatever reason, you know, they because they're not challenged as much or whatever, then they don't actually, you know, get stronger. So we have to take a step back. This is a perfect example of a corrective exercise because you asked me, you know, what is a corrective exercise? Like, shouldn't all exercise be corrective or why should any exercise be called corrective? Shouldn't we just do all exercises better? And it's a good question, but I define corrective exercise is in a couple of ways, but one is probably doing an exercise that's, that you wouldn't normally do unless you had a problem or saw a problem or whether it's weakness or joint pain or whatever. So here's a perfect example of a corrective exercise. So the deadlift, you thought you were good at it, but your glute development is crappy and you have someone test your glute strength and you see this really lousy. So 
you have two choices here. One, you could be like, okay, uh, I need to find a personal trainer strength coach who can help me turn on my glutes, you know, while I'm doing the deadlift. Cause that would be the top down approach that I would prefer. So you could do some cues like that and be like, okay, squeeze this or do that or whatever. But we know that internal cues aren't really that great because telling someone to squeeze their glutes when they don't really know what it's supposed to feel like, when they don't have a good mind muscle connection. They don't, it's like, it's like Ted me, uh, telling you to paint a picture of something you've never seen. You know, you don't even know, you know, what it is you're supposed to paint because you haven't seen that these people don't even know what it is they're supposed to feel because they haven't really felt it. You know, Stu McGill calls it gluteal amnesia. So that's another good example is when a lot of different experts talk about this, whether it's Chris Powers or, or Stu McGill or when Brett Contreras talks about glute active, you know, glute drills and all that. When, when you have all different experts in the field, even if they're using different nomenclature, different semantics, but they're all kind of talking about the same thing, you know, it's probably a real thing. So it's not like this some something we made up about this glute inhibition or muscle inhibition or whatever. But again, getting back to then correcting the deadlift, you know, you you can give them cues, okay, try to squeeze their glutes, but I said they might not even know what that feels like. So that's when we like to use external cues and external focus because research by Wolf uh, has shown that that works really well for um, learning tasks, especially complex tasks. Well, anyway, in this case, what you would do is you'd put a, a strong mini band around their lower thighs, right above their knees. So the, the mini band is going to try to pull their knees together. So in order for them to keep their knees out of their feet, they have to use the glute fibers that perform external rotation and hip abduction, which just so happens to be the same muscle fibers that are usually relatively weakest on people or inhibited or have the poorest motor control, whatever you want to call it. But in any case, putting that strong mini band right above their knees and having to keep their knees out of their feet and doing the deadlift now is a great step towards getting the glutes turned on during the set of deadlifts. So you could say that the corrective exercise is still the deadlift, but you, but the corrective version is with the band around the knees. Okay. But that might not work as well as you want to either. You know, you should probably based on the research, then do some type of a more, I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully here of a more isolated way to turn on the glutes, like with the fire hydrant exercise or something like that, and just get the brain, get the brain butt connection, the mind muscle connections to the group, to the glutes, uh, really improve that. So then those motor units and muscle fibers won't be lying dormant the next time you do the deadlift, thinking about keeping your knees out over the feet, even if you don't have the band on, and then you start to feel the glute working more. And then that whole process, um, continues to feed on itself in a good way. So hopefully that answered your question. Yeah, no, I I can't believe that we've been we've been talking for like 45 minutes already and it feels like we're just starting to scratch the surface here and I want to I want to make this super applicable for the people listening and and Chad, man, you're just breaking down some really complex ideas in a way that I believe most people even if they don't know what a mini band is, it's just a band that's kind of sh small and you put it around your knees and put some tension. Even if you don't know all the names of everything, like I, I know that you're listening and you're getting a better idea of why you may have some problems. Cause a lot of our listeners are in their thirties, forties, fifties. And one of the things I get written about or written or emailed about the most are, are injuries. And man, 
you're you're bringing up a good rationale of like or, or a good reason why everyone listening, if they're having trouble pushing themselves in the gym because of injuries, you've got to rethink your training. You've got to start incorporating some of these isometric holds. You got to understand like, Hey, there's something not working right on my body. And Chad, you got some great stuff and powerful mobility, your ebook. I'll make sure that's here on the show notes for this episode. You can also check it, just go to Amazon and get it. Uh, just look up Chad Waterbury or powerful mobility. Both will come up. I, I, bought it. I read it and there's some great stuff in there. I can't wait to, to try. I just bought it last night, by the way. So can't wait to (laughs) dive in. And and I I wanted to be ready for this. And, um, let's talk a little bit about You've, you've explained so much and I know people are starting to see the picture. Let's talk a little bit about why people continue to get injured in the gym and how they need to structure their training a bit differently. Because one of the biggest pushbacks I get is on the activation warm-up that includes a lot of isometric exercises, isometric corrective exercises in the beginning before people go and do their workouts. But Chad, a lot of people skip them, man. And you said that that's important for turning things on to go into the gym. Of course, it's better if they work with an individual and it's very personalized. And you also said something awesome. One of the biggest issues we're having with people in the modern world is we're so inactive. And then you take your your body that's kind of beat up from the hard training, and then you try to go run to, to get your VO2 max up or whatever it is, and that's beating up your knees. But what you said earlier was that this is a way that you can keep your muscles activated. They, you can keep them strong and it's not going to beat up your joints. So this is something that they, that people can do in between workouts. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was a big focus of my powerful mobility ebook. It's, uh, basically corrective exercises, activation exercises for, uh, people who have problems with their shoulders or their knees or their low back. And a lot of what I can say here, I'll just kind of give a summary because I don't want to repeat too many things that I've already said, but the key here is to get the muscle stronger or to improve motor control. Uh, I'm just going to say, get the muscle stronger. Just, I don't want to have to go back and forth with all these different terms is to get the muscle stronger. And, you know, that can mean your ability to recruit more motor units and or uh, larger, stronger muscle fibers, but without putting stress on the joints, because here's the thing. With all the technology we have, we're talking about, you know, living on Mars right. and all these crazy things. <laughs> we still in no way, shape or form can come anywhere close to rebuilding cartilage in humans. Now, for people who don't like really uh, haven't seen this or don't really understand this, I'll give you a, a simple visualization. So imagine two bones, just two like bones you pick up. And you, and you dip the, the one end of one bone in hot wax and the end of uh, another bone in hot wax. You let that wax dry. And now you put those two bones together, those two, uh, the ends that have the, the dried wax on it, right? Sure. And that would, if you start rubbing those bones against each other, it's going to help protect the bones, right? 
because it's got that wax covering it, right? It's not going to break down the bones. That's exactly how cartilage is on your bones. Okay. However, when you run a lot or you lift heavy or you get older or all these things, you start to lose that cartilage. And as soon as you lose that cartilage and those bones, you get bone to bone contact, bones have nerve endings and it's very painful and there's nothing they can do about it. There's nothing they can do about it right now. Not even the stem cell, it looks nope. promising to you? No, nope. no. I was just talking to one of the most prominent sport, uh, sports ortho surgeons, the one you always see on ESPN and all. Well, it's talking to Neil Alatrash, so you, you guys probably know who he is. He did Tom Brady's ACL and a whole host of other things. But um, he was telling me, because I, you know, I always want to you know, ask, ask the big guys who, who are in that field. I said, okay, when I got a PT school, which, you know, wasn't that long ago there, they said there wasn't, I was like, Oh, I just wonder if there's anything on the horizon or whatever. He's like, no, basically not. You know, they're, they're trying to do some things in a lab and cultures and stuff, but it's going to be really complex because in a way to get it in the body, to basically try to regrow your own cartilage and get it in your body and have your body not reject it, which is the problem with, you know, they're doing organ transplants way back in the day. And they're figuring out, you know, how to get better and better at that. But here, I'm, I'm getting off, off the mark here. My point is this. Your cartilage, it's like, it's like youth. It should be revered like youth. Once it's gone, it's never coming back. So <laughs> instead of being like, oh, I want to get in shape and get my muscles stronger. And, you know, I'm going to start running for, you know, 10 hours at a time. It's going to wear down your cartilage or you're going to lift heavy, do heavy squats just as much as you can. You know, in the younger days, we were all doing that, but I was telling you, it's going to wear down your cartilage. So what these isometric holds do in these different positions is it strengthens all the muscles that help support the joints for the stability you need. It can help grow the, the muscle, you know, because people like to have bigger muscles. You can choose to, you know, not seek hypertrophy or whatever, but it's going to spare the joints. You know, sparing the joints is just, it's really, Stu McGill forever has talked about sparing the spine, you know, all the joints in our spine, which it's, you know, absolutely essential but we should think about sparing you know the other joints too sparing our knees sparing our especially our knees like knees cartilage is such a big deal in the knees yeah you know because it's load bearing and all day long uh you know there's just there's just load bearing through there and if you start running a lot you run on pavement and do all these things you're going to wear it out so these activation drills are really good for as i said getting the muscle stronger Helping to then eventually improve motor control of a joint, stability of a joint can help the muscle grow and it will, you know, spare the joints. And it's something you can do even if you're having trouble with the conventional exercises like lunges. And it it's man, I I'm back doing lunges, but there was a time, Chad, where I couldn't do squats and I couldn't do lunges because my left knee cartilage was so beat up. And I'm really into body weight exercise right now and, uh, you know, in isometric holds and things like that because, man, I, I feel pretty great and I'm 40. And when I was 30, I was competing in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I was jacked. I was ripped even though I was 185 and like I'm 200 now, but I was, was pretty shredded. But I was in pain all the time, man. And I was sitting on the toilet or on the couch and I was like, oh my God, I feel like I'm like 70 years old, but I'm 30. 
how am I going to be in 10 years or 20 years or or 30 years? I'm going to be alive that long. Am I going to be one of those people who once you lose it, then it's going to be this fight to like, how do I stay in shape? Because we know dynapenia, the age-related loss of of, uh, muscle strength and sarcopenia, the age-related loss of muscle. I mean, that's coming for us and we can eat all the protein we want, but if unless we're stimulating those muscles, they're not going to uh, they're not going to age well. They're not going to maintain their strength in in a healthy metabolic function unless we're able to stress them. So injuries just you know so many people talk about the heart being the most important muscle. It's like uh, until your knees are shot or you have a back injury, and then you can't do any of that aerobic stuff. Well, um, my vote's for the diaphragm for the most important muscle because if if you don't have a diaphragm, you can't breathe. So you know we can <laughs> we can pick the pieces apart, but you know, you, you know muscle, heart, whatever, you know. But they're they're all let's just say they're all really really important. <laughs> so, uh, but this, I'm glad you said that because it reminded me of something I want your listeners to know. Generally speaking, as you get older, your joints are more creaky, right? So it's harder to lift, quote, heavy loads, you know, whatever is heavy for you. Let's just say a heavy load is anything you can't do more than six reps, all right? That gets harder as you get older. Well, the great news is in terms of offsetting the sarcopenia and the the other things that you mentioned and just keeping your muscle mass, which is so important for your strength and your metabolic health and all these things, is research over the last few years has been pretty darn clear that virtually any um, respectable load, I mean, we're talking like 30% of someone's one rep max and a powerlifter would say that's not respectable, but you know what I mean? Anything that's like more than a muscle, you know, can effectively build muscle. I mean, there's research that shows that 30% of one RM by, uh, I think it was Stu Phillips. I can't remember who did it. I don't want to. Yeah, no, Stu was on the show Uh, not too long ago. His episode is- Yeah. 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 So it was like 30% of one rep max is just as effective as like, I can't like 80 or heavy load. Yeah. Eight to 12 is. Yeah. 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 So the great news is, is like, if you're just trying to build muscle and keep your muscle mass and, and do all that stuff, there's a whole range of things that you can do. You don't have to get just caught up in, in heavy lifting. And I would make the argument that there's probably even for people who could lift heavy all the time that, by doing these higher rep sets and things like that, it's it's very beneficial for overall muscle endurance and metabolic health and all these other things that we seek. Yeah, so well said, Chad. And uh, as you start to get into your 30s, you start to realize that if you keep up a hard training regimen, you, you start to realize, mm, I'm going to have to change something if I want to be doing this in 10, 20, 30 years. And then there are a lot of people who get out of shape, former athletes who got taken away from uh, their training to pursue, put all that energy into their career, raising a family, and uh, bo- both men and women who's, who listen to the show. And they end up trying to do the same things they used before in a body that's deconditioned and older and less resilient and recovery is not as good and the sleep isn't, the quality isn't quite what it used to be. And they they burn out, man, or or get injured. So it was just a point. I, I kind of wanted to ask you, I know we're running, we're we're already into an hour here, but uh maybe we can do a part two and talk about like lifestyle and sleep and how that affects injuries. But let's wrap this up now and and uh 
because uh, you, you shared so much. So I'm going to have the links to the different products you mentioned. And I highly recommend if you're listening right now, definitely check it out. Chad's just one of the people who, uh, guys like me and, and other people who you probably watch and think, whoa, that guy knows a lot. Those people and people like me, they've been learning from Chad for a long time. And uh, check out his stuff. Uh, Chad, where would you want people to go in addition to your corrective exercise course and, and your powerful powerful mobility book? Well, the best thing is to go to my website, chadwaterberry.com, and join my newsletter list because then you'll be able to, um, it's free and you know, you, then you'll know the, the, when I, wherever I put out my latest blog or get my latest information or whatever, um, I'm on social media as well, but all that is then under the umbrella of the whole newsletter list. That's just the best, simplest way to ensure that you, you know, know where my products are or what I'm doing or when I'm giving a seminar. And, uh, you know, cause I start, I'm starting to give more seminars now that I'm out of school and I just gave one for, um, Equinox trainers last week here in uh, West Los Angeles, but I just encourage everyone, you know, of the, of the things that you mentioned, I just want to say one thing real quick though, all those other lifestyle factors. I just, I cannot say enough about sleep and uh, people probably heard it a million times, but you know, if you think about your immune system comes from your gut, you know, one of the best things you can do to improve gut health is to get more sleep, high quality sleep, because when you don't get adequate sleep, the balance of bacteria in your gut, um, that whole world that goes on in there gets really thrown off. So just by getting more sleep, you'll in turn have better gut health, which in turn will help you lose fat faster and recover faster and improve your skin and, you know, and all these, all these great things. So, but I got to bite my, uh, bite my lip right now because I'm going to get down this whole nother, nother avenue. Well, let, let's do a round two sometime in, in the very near future because, uh, you know, I feel like we just scratched the surface and there's so much to talk about and so many things that I didn't even get to ask you about stretching and, you know, foam rolling and all the other things that people popularize, people in our industry popularize. But, you know, like, like you said, it's not just about foam rolling an IT band when your knee hurts. You got to think a little bit deeper about this situation. And it usually comes back to doing one of the things you have in your powerful mobility book or, or in my activation warm up for my workouts or things like that. But we'll, we'll do a, a catch up and, and we'll make that happen again, Chad. We'll make it happen soon. Oh, that'd be terrific. I'd love to come back. Awesome. Well, Chad, thanks so much, man. Really a pleasure catching up with you. And thanks so much. I, I learned so much. I always learn from people, but I really got a lot out of speaking to you. And like I said, I can't wait to do it again soon. All right. Thanks, buddy. My pleasure. That wraps up another episode of the Legendary Light Podcast. I hope you enjoyed learning from Dr. Chad Waterbury as much as I did. Make sure you use that information that he shared with you to start getting better results in the gym. Start to feel better, have your joints feel better. Start to learn how to work around those aches, those pains, and perhaps that injury you've been dealing with. And if you want me to help you get in shape, well, I offer a dynamic warm-up using a lot of corrective exercises 
in the workouts that I sell on my website and in the Legendary Lean Coaching Group. All the workouts come with a dynamic warm-up to help you improve your mobility, reduce aches and pains, and prevent injuries in the gym. And if you want to check out what I've got going on, check out legendarylifepodcast.com slash coaching and join now because spots are limited. It's a great program, people. If you're looking for something to take you to the next level, to get in better shape, to lose more body fat, to build more strength in the gym, this program is incredible. We consistently get results with everybody who signs up, who dedicates and commits themselves to doing the work. And that's legendarylightpodcast.com slash coaching. All right, time to wrap it up. Hope you enjoyed this. Have an amazing week and I'll speak to you soon.